in our world, in, in the world that IBM focuses AI, which is in the world of enterprise AI, our declare an exclusive purpose is to augment the human capability. So in that sense, everything that we do research on, the products that we build, the mechanism by which we introduce those products to society and to our clients, that responsible introduction is always targeted to basically give humans bigger levers, right? So think about on the physical world is we just want to give more capabilities to the humans, which means we, we really don't see an environment where our technology would replace or would like become a terminator like because it's kind of not what we're working on, right? What we're working on, our main purpose is that. I think it's very important that people ask those questions. I think it's also very important that people ask the question, hey, you know, what data is this artificial intelligence, you know, technology or algorithm, what data is used to train it and what expertise, meaning what humans are training that? Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. And hey, welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. Today, we have an amazing guest, Jesus Mantas from IBM, to talk about our artificial intelligence, what AI is, what the main consumer and business applications are, what IBM is doing in the AI space, and how IBM is tackling some of the risks of AI. But before that, I get to pitch the podcast a little bit to you. If you like Think Bigger, Think Better, there are four things you can do to support it. No, you don't have to do all four. The first one is you've got to subscribe. Click that button in your favorite podcast app so you get new episodes as soon as they're released. The second is lob in a dollar or two or whatever per episode on Patreon. It comes straight from PayPal. You won't notice it's missing, and it takes literally seconds to sign up. Look for Patreon, Think Bigger, Think Better on Google, and you'll find us. Third, like our Facebook page, Think Bigger, Think Better, or follow me on Twitter, Paul G. Gibbons. And lastly, you could write a review on iTunes, which is enormously helpful for us showing up in search. So many thanks for that. Those are all super duper helpful. Thanks for your historical support. Thanks for listening. And let's get on with Jesus Mantas and IBM. Before getting started with Jesus this week, I'm recording an interview with the Right Honorable James Shaw, Cabinet Minister from New Zealand, who's going to talk about climate change. I'm also talking this week with the president of an edtech startup who's going to talk about the costs and benefits of online education. And next week, I'm interviewing someone who's a pivotal character in the marijuana industry. If you're like me, old, the marijuana industry is chichin chong and didn't go much further, but not anymore. There are big bucks around as it's legalized around the world. And now on to Jesus, IBM, and AI. You know, IBM is an incredible company. It's more than 100 years old, and if I believe I know my corporate history well, there are only four companies in the Dow Jones that can claim to be over 100 years old. IBM is a tech company that began in the very high-tech area of meat slicers around the turn of the last century, but has since ridden every single technological wave decade after decade. 
It now leads in blockchain, cognitive AI, cloud, platform as a service, software as a service, cybersecurity, and much, much more. IBM employees have earned five Nobel Prizes, four Turing Awards, five National Medals of Technology, and five National Medals of Science. If you've listened to me talk about business and the purpose of business and the most noble purposes for business in the 21st century, you'll know that my view is one of the most noble, almost spiritual purposes of business is to scale technology for the benefit of humankind. And IBM is a world leader in doing that. So like, wow, five Nobel Prizes. IBM has been a leader in AI for decades, effectively betting the farm on it. Wall Street, for the longest time, was critical of IBM's moonshot investments in AI, and to some extent in quantum computing, but it has survived over the decades in the turbulence of the tech industry by making such big bets. And now on to Jesus. Who is this guy, Jesus? Jesus is from Spain, but lives in Austin. He's a managing partner with IBM. He has accountability for cognitive and is chief strategy officer of IBM's consulting business. He's in some ways typical IBM. He's a geek through and through from his engineering background, but he's also a geek who specializes and devoted his life and career into helping businesses exploit new technology for consumer and business benefit. Now, let's welcome Jesus. Jesus, welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better. Listen, I I always ask this embarrassing question to start off with. Tell us something a little bit about yourself that's a little off your CV, a little quirky, a little eccentric. Uh, Quirky. Well, um, I think, you know, when my professional life, I have been the last, you know, 20-something years in uh, business consulting. And uh, sometimes people do not expect how much of a geek I can be. Because my my background, I'm actually an engineer, software and telecommunications engineer. So I can go very, very deep and I'm very passionate about technology. So sometimes it catches people by surprise. So I would say, uh, yeah, I'm more of a geek than people realize I am. Well, from a career point of view, how did you make the transition between uh, engineering geek and business executive? They're, they're often different mindsets even today. Yeah, I think and in a way has actually helped me for where the world is going. I would say that I, I always refused, you know, when I, I was growing up, I grew up in, in Spain. I grew up in an environment where you had to choose, you know, are you going to go and progress on science or are you going to grow and progress on arts? And I always refused to choose. I said, wait a minute, I want both, right? So kind of like one of my heroes uh, was Da Vinci in the way that he would basically mix technology and art to create something that hadn't been done before. So in a way, I have been doing that all my life, right? And uh, when I came to consulting, that was actually a source of strength is the fact that I could actually understand technology better than the average and then focus to apply in order to create a business advantage has actually served me very well. Very, very cool. All right. Shall we get into, let's, let's talk about AI a little bit. Let's talk about AI. Well, I heard it said about AI that something is called AI until it becomes possible, like it finds its way into our homes and then it's no longer called AI. Like AI is used to describe things that aren't happening, but AI has snuck up on us. It is in the home. So for the sort of from a basic perspective, a consumer, where do we see AI around the house in our lives right now? Yeah, I think you're right, uh, Paul. So there is more AI in consumer environments that people realize. It's it kind of like sits in all of our kitchens as a matter of speak. Most of the modern phones have some form of machine learning algorithms that qualify as artificial intelligence. 
I think when people are, you know, surfing in social media sites, uh, there are machine learning algorithms that are trying to, you know, detect what's happening. When they're visiting a, uh, an e-commerce site or an app, uh, their purchasing is more powered by machine learning and AI that they realize. So, you know, it may not be traded or branded as AI, but AI and specifically, you know, deep learning and machine learning technology over the last, I would say, five years have basically come through, if you want, the, the kitchen of our lives. And it's present in, in more of our daily lives than we all realize. That's interesting. So in our phones, in our cars, in our kitchens. Yeah, it's all over. It's all over. That's cool. And where next? So consumers in 2025 or 2020, where is it going to be? Where is it going to be next? Where can we look for next? Well, I think, I think what, uh, what we have been focusing on is figure out how to properly uh, start introducing AI scenarios in our business lives, in our professional lives, right? So uh, in a way, some of the scenarios in our business lives are less complicated than the scenarios that artificial intelligence have to resolve for a consumer. I mean, just think about the much talked about self-driving car. That is probably the highest complexity that one can imagine in embedding into technology just because of the, the combination of of uh, things that have to happen, right? So the technology need to basically see the way we see. The technology need to like understand and be able to differentiate objects and threats and make decisions. So it's a very complicated, you know, set of scenarios. That is why, you know, frankly, even though there has been a lot of narrative about it, we still don't have cars, you know, reliably on the streets, basically being able to do that at a commercial scale, right? However, if you take some of that technology and you apply it to some of the things that we, we routinely do in our jobs, right? So either, you know, engage with clients or understand what consumers want or process transactions, right? A, a significant amount of uh, the jobs of many of people in, in finance or in auditing, it's actually about processing transactions. Artificial intelligence can actually help those people be more accurate, reduce risk, reduce errors, make better decisions to a level of degree that in a way is not actually as complicated as a self-driving car. So I'd say that's where we're going to start seeing it more next is, is basically in our daily jobs. More in our workplaces. Fantastic. Exactly. Exactly. Interesting, interesting. interesting. So uh, obviously you're a leader in some of the consumer applications, but what about if I were running a business right now, where would I find... Well, where would I find AI in my business now? And where would I find it maybe in, say, 2025 or 2023, five or seven years' time? What are the big business apps? Yeah, it's interesting. You know what? We actually have a lot of data. We have uh, you know, thousands of engagements in, in our you know, last five to 10 years that we have done. But in addition to that, we recently did a study of over 5,000 executives to ask some of those questions, right? And we had done a similar study two years ago. So the interesting thing is we've been able to see how even the opinion of the executives is, is morphing in terms of where do they predict they themselves are going to be applying this technology. So, you know, two years ago, everybody was experimenting everywhere. So if you would ask CEOs, where are you going to apply AI technology? They would basically give you a list of 15 functions, pretty much every corner of the enterprise. You call that AI tourism, don't you? I call that AI tourism. Everybody was trying to learn, experiment. Everybody was talking about it. Nobody was really doing it, but everybody was talking about it. You know, it was like this thing that it was uh, fancy to talk about. Now, two years later, right? So when we did that study, 
uh, that has converged a lot. So from those 15 areas that everybody was kind of experimenting, now everybody went into you know five very discrete areas, of which three are all of them growth, innovation, and revenue generating. So most of the CEOs of our clients see themselves supplying artificial intelligence to help them better engage with their clients, better personalize their offerings, better personalize their product, enrich their products with more value from what they can see right now, right? So that is one one area that they see. A top-line focus. A top-line focus. And if you want an improvement of the experience that they can provide to their customers, right? Whether it's a product or a service, enhance the value uh, and enhance the personalization. The second area is a, a set of reduction of risk. If you think about it, there is still a lot of operations and a lot of transactions that when you have to perform due diligence, imagine you know some of the banks and financial institutions, they buy and sell financial products, and these financial products are comprised of like hundreds of transactions inside of them. Most of the auditing of that today is done by sampling, meaning you know, you don't have the ability to deploy like thousands of people to read every piece of paper. So you basically take maybe 10, 15% of the transactions, they look okay. So you assume the package of the thousands, 2000 transactions, they're all okay. You see artificial intelligence changes that because artificial intelligence allows you to actually read every page of the thousands of transactions. So you get a lower risk and more assurance that you don't have things that you don't expect that was not feasible before. So the area of risk and compliance is a big area as well. Uh, the third one, I call it, you know, technology to manage technology. You know, one of the things that has happened the last 10 years is as technology is evolving, our technology infrastructure, our technology, if you want, backbone of our businesses is become larger and more complex, right? So is technology is a bigger uh, percent, if you want, of the enterprise itself. But it has become more complex to the point that it just takes too many people to figure out what's going on. So a third area that everybody is very focused is, is how do we use artificial intelligence technology to make a better management of our own technology? And that includes both just managing you know, the things that break. So when you have like thousands or tens of thousands of printers in a network, having artificial intelligence predict and prevent that something is going to break becomes very useful, right? I think we use artificial intelligence to do things like, uh, for example, if you're going to have a, you know, a big event and you don't know if you're going to have 10 million viewers or 100 million viewers, well, how do you prepare for that? Artificial intelligence can give you a better prediction when you do things like, for example, uh, we provide the backbone of Wimbledon. That makes sure that you know the experience that you're going to provide and that technology is going to be available no matter what. So technology managed technology is one of these big trends. You know, subcategory of that is cybersecurity. You see the, the threat and the complexity of the threat of cybersecurity continues to grow exponentially to the point that you almost need artificial intelligence to be faster and more accurate in determining the threats than, you know, frankly, humans can do. So, so artificial intelligence becomes a great lever and a great tool for cybersecurity departments to be able to do that. And then outclose is not least important, but the area of what I would call knowledge worker is enriching, you know, frankly, virtually almost every profession with more data in order to improve the performance of, again, pretty much every profession, whether you're a nurse, whether you're an architect, whether you're an engineer, whether you're, you know, a sports 
person, right? A tennis player, a cyclist, or a lawyer, or a lawyer, or a lawyer. Or a human resources exactly, professional. exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just, it's just that the knowledge worker is going from what you know to what you know the world knows in terms of providing you information for the next decision that you're going to do. Is the fifth category that is just backing into pretty much every profession. So I see something as cool. I mean, first of all, I guess it speaks to your role. I, I had a little talk earlier about your role. Your role includes things like blockchain. It includes clouds. Uh, I suppose it includes things like smart contracts. It'll include the analytics practice, uh, the cognitive practice. And that's one thing I guess I, I'll allow you to blow IBM's horn here. You offer to customers that many firms can't. You just don't offer the the sort of the AI, the cognitive package, but you can do blockchain, you can do clouds, you can do platform as a service, software as a service, you do all of that. That's something distinctive, I think, about IBM here. Correct. And I think I think what's interesting is uh, I think one of the mistakes that people did while they they were doing AI tourism was this idea of be confused that AI was the destination. AI is a mean to an end, but it's not the end on itself. AI is a tool. A blockchain is a tool to basically take, you know, physical transactions to the world of reliable, you know, digital transactions. Internet of Things is a better way to instrument the physical world the way we do it to the data world. So you can actually apply this different set of, you know, competencies in data. So all of these things are means to an end. And I think having clarity of that end before you embark in any of these projects is really essential. It is what we advise our clients. It is what we start with them is the clarity of purpose will basically take the range of choices from the thousands to maybe the tens and make it more pragmatic and faster, you know, path to value and, and higher success than just kind of going and do AI for the sake of AI or blockchain for the sake of blockchain or internet of things for the sake of internet of things or, or cloud just because we can, right? So I think the combination of these technologies with a clear purpose is, in our opinion, a better formula for success. I want to ask you a personal question, if you don't mind. I mean, you're a business leader, right? You have a business leader. I don't know how many people might be, you might include in your reports, thousands, tens of thousands, perhaps, you know, in your organization. How, if you're charged with leading in five of the most technologically complex areas, I think we talked about IoT, we talked about cloud, we talked about blockchain, we talked about AI, about cognitive, we talked about I mean, Watson, all of that. How on earth do you stay up? How do you keep up? Well, I, I mean, me personally, I don't think I ever do, right? So I, I just feel that every day I just I'm just one day behind. So, but I think the strength as an organization is is we do have people that specialize in each one of these areas, right? So the way that we we organize, for example, our our services groups is by practice, and what we do is we go very deep in each one of these practices. So we always have a reachable network of people that are basically their best in each one of these domains. And what we do is then we also pay a lot of attention to make sure that we are training and, and developing architects and solution engineers that are experts on aggregating and, and if you want, composing all of these technologies for the sense of a business purpose. The other thing that we do is we kind of like practice the same thing that we preach is, you know, the fact that we are big it becomes an asset because that means in any given day, we're doing, you know, maybe 10,000 projects all around the world. 
we know what these projects are and we can determine the patterns that we see across geographies, across industries, across functions. We can distill those patterns. We can in real time learn. And we have tools that make that, you know, very, very practical. Each one of our, you know, the partners and associate partners in our services organization can literally in 15 seconds, real time on their phone, they can look up anybody in the world in our services organization that has done any AI project in any industry on any domain, know their phone number, their names, they can ask any questions. Did it work? Did not work? What did you learn? How do we apply it? So this idea of exponential learning and creating a, if you want, a data-driven leadership where being big becomes, you know, more, uh, an asset, an asset and not, not a liability. liability, exactly, because of the agility of being able to surface that data, make it usable at the point of uh, at the point of need. That is how I would answer your question. That is what we believe is our advantage: is the fact that you know, as you said, we've been early on this. We've done many of this. We understand the patterns very well, especially in what we focus, which is the business to business enterprise space, and we can make that you know pragmatically available at the point of use for each one of our clients. I think that gives us an advantage. It is amazing. And a knowledge, you're more knowledge organizations. I, I As you know, I, I was a consultant at PwC. I think we were briefly colleagues for about three that's years. That's right. That's right. In, in the late 1990s. I don't, where were you in the late 1990s? I was in London. I was in Southern California. I was part of the PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, uh, high-tech practice in Southern California. Very cool. One thing I, when I became a consultant that I just found absolutely extraordinary is I was on the third floor of the London office. I was in financial services, specialist in derivatives. And we were working on a, a big pitch to uh, one of the London's big banks, HSBC or Barclays or someone like that. And unbeknownst to us, the guys at the other end of the hall were working on the same client proposing a different methodology. We were so poor at sharing knowledge. We didn't even have knowledge sharing on the same floor. Never mind in an organization of a few hundred thousand people. It was an extraordinary thing to witness. Extraordinary waste of resources too, of course. Yeah. I think most consulting organizations can relate to that. And, you know, that's, that's an interesting point that is, is not just the technology, but learning skills. So learning, you know, the skills that it takes to understand that you can use data to produce better decisions and not just anecdotally use what you know, an individual has learned through experience, which may be biased, that using that to change habits and then that to change culture is not a trivial equation. Uh, it is not a trivial equation for us as consulting organizations or large organizations or for our clients. And it's one of the keys of, you know, how do we get people to really, you know, make that leap to either see artificial intelligence at arm's length as something that is going to happen to me versus see artificial intelligence as, as my lever, as my tool, as my, you know, extension that I'm going to use to gather information that I couldn't do before and therefore make more data-driven decisions that I would make if I wouldn't have this tool. I think it's, it's really a big focus of, of us. And, uh, and to your point, that is what it will require for uh, companies not having, to your point, not only in the same floor, but in the same countries, or there's a lot of uh, a lot of large organizations there where they actually have different contracts with the same supplier for the same things with different prices, just because different people negotiated it. So even simple use cases like that, you know, broadening the data and then bringing tools creates significant value, but it takes that change. In well, uh, yeah, it doesn't. And, and that's, you know, going back to our PwC days, I remember we, knowledge management became a thing about 1995, 1996. You know, we realized that to be a large knowledge organization, 
you had to have a knowledge management system. And the behavioral change problems were really, really magnificent. First of all, you had to get people to update the system if that wasn't done automatically, and then you had to get people to use it. And as you well know, I know you're interested in the human, the human side of AI. Human beings aren't accustomed to using data when they make decisions. They use their gut. They're under pressure. And so, so it's the behavioral change for people actually having the discipline to use the tools that are available and having discipline to use the system. And I, I just don't know, what do you see, what do you see now, you know, in your travel and the senior leadership of the world's businesses? How quickly are, or how sufficiently are senior business leaders adapting to their own behaviors and their own learning models? I think everybody is, is uh, crucially aware of the need. Uh, literally, I, I'd say, you know, globally, everywhere across industries, most leaders understand that their problem is less about technology and more about this culture change. And I would say out there to say, we speak to a lot of CEOs, you know, over a hundred of them that recently we talked about, all of them, they were very aware of their own need to relearn, if you want, unlearn things and then relearn new new ways to do things in order to be able to demonstrate that to themselves. But frankly, to just be a better CEO, right? If you're a CEO that makes decisions with guts uh, versus, I mean, every, every CEO will tell you that they make decisions with data, but the question is to what extent and how that data is presented, right? You, you probably have, have read some of my point of view that 80% of the decisions we make is not about the data, but how it is presented to us. It's, it's just a, a neuroscience fact, right? We're designed for shortcuts. So I think, one, most of the leaders, especially if they're in the middle of some form of digital transformation, they're very clear that one of the pillars for that to, to stick and to work is that change of leadership behavior around data and I think the other side of it is a little bit generational, right? I think, I mean, think about it. There's, you know, most millennials, the world without internet didn't exist. So from, you know, every step on their life, when they need the answer to any question, what do they do? They Google it, right? It's, it's almost like, it's automatic. It's like, you don't really, and you would not just say, oh, let me just think if I can remember the answer to that. It's like, well, I don't know that. Let me Google it. So that, I mean, that simple habit actually projects easier to, you know, when they, when they actually get a job and they say, well, wait a minute, I don't know that. Where can I go find the answer? And that's where, to your point, most organizations just basically, you know, dead stop because they say, well, what do you mean? Because the millennial behavior is like, well, don't you have like a Google for like my job that I can just go and answer questions? And everybody's like, well, no. <laughs> and I think that's, that's a little bit of the next generation of knowledge management is, well, if you really want to capture how, you know, a large organization is making decisions, it's really, again, it's the combination of being able to figure out the data, but also providing tools that make it so consumable that then it becomes the path of low resistance is to actually use so it. So visualization, accessibility, those sorts of those sorts of features. Exactly. I'll tell you I, again, and that's that's the answer that I was giving you. For our own services organization, one of the uh, one of the tools that I deployed. We call it Searchlight, and uh, it literally takes you know less than ten seconds in any environment, anywhere, any part of the world to just type a word and saying, for example, artificial intelligence in automotive, and in ten seconds you get every single engagement that is obviously not under NDA 
that anybody in the world in that services organization is doing for the finance department of that automotive and you get the list and you can call the dozens of use cases and yeah exactly if that would take like you know log in go to a page send an email call somebody nobody would do it they'll just say well you know what i have a proposal on my laptop or just reinvent the wheel and i'll think about I'll, i'll design this from the bottom up if you will Exactly. So, so, so that's a key point is not AI in itself as a technology, but the design wrapper in how that technology is embedded into workflows, in my view, is as important than the actual, you know, feature of the technology itself. Well, okay. I want to give you a chance to wow the people that are listening because, uh, you know, we have some, uh, someone representing company that's a world leader in this stuff. And I, I don't know if you think about the AI world this way, but I think about verticality and I think about horizontality. I think about horizontality, which are industry use cases. And I think about verticality from you make a very high powered processor. So everything from making a processor, which enables technology, you know, the hardware to work all the way up to consumer interfaces. So the whole, if you want, value chain. I think, what are some of the really fascinating, amazing industry use cases that you're most proud of right now? And I guess uh, we could also talk about what are the the verticality? Like, what do you deliver? Because there aren't many firms like you, right? There aren't many firms that can both deliver a piece of hardware and deliver everything to implementation and to user training and skills training and change management and all of that. So it's not there are not many that can do that. So Let's wow listeners a little bit with an IBM story. Yeah, I would say a number of areas. As you said, so as as IBM, we really have been on this field maybe a lot longer than mostly everybody else. From the actual science of artificial intelligence and deep learning, and not only measuring the number of patents, but, you know, our commitments, like the lab that we have created with MIT and IBM and the commitment of $250 million to sure. basically continue to pursue the edge of what artificial intelligence need to be, need to be applied. And what's interesting about that is that Wall Street, I know, a decade ago was losing patience with you. So like these guys are investing and why are they spending all this money and, you know, how long is it going to take to realize and capitalize on this thought leadership and all of that? So I know that 10 years ago, they were like, this place isn't a university. We want it to be a business. So how are they going to commercialize this stuff? Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes, you know, uh, when you're a market leader, uh, there are times where uh, it's okay to be misunderstood, right? It's okay to be ahead of, uh, I mean, think about it. IBM invented the barcode. Many people just, you know, at the time, they could probably not envision why would I need a barcode <laughs> and what would you do with it? Now, today, we don't have that problem, right? So I think, uh, again, when we came out, there was even people that thinking, well, you know, this machine learning thing, you know, we don't really think that that's going to work, right? We don't have that problem anymore. So so I'd say, yeah, so from leading on the edge of, of science and being very clear, especially we focus on on an element of artificial intelligence, which is its application to the enterprise space. We are very focused on business-to-business enterprise, and that is a different, let's say, it's an application of artificial intelligence that requires different features compared to, let's say, consumer AI. So from that element of it to, you know, as you said, you know, servers, actually, the power line of, of our servers, which was specifically engineered to be better than, you know, uh, a general servers to actually process the kind of workloads uh, that are required by artificial intelligence, right? Massively parallel, massive data, you know, protection, et cetera, 
to then the creation of the actual, you know, the platforms, the, the platform as a service, which is, you know, better known by, by the name of Watson. And again, it's, it's creating a platform that is, is designed specifically for the enterprise space. And, and just a couple of features on what that means is, unlike in the consumer world where you can have billions of data points to train models, in the enterprise world, you typically have less data. You have maybe hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of transactions in order to train the system. So enterprise AI needs to be better at learning faster with less data than consumer AI. And, and the science of that is very different, right? It's just, it's almost like, uh, think of an athlete, right? If, if somebody is training for a marathon, uh, somebody's training for the, for the 100 meters, I mean, those muscles are different, right? If you flip those two, they're going to fail, right? So think of us as that platform, that Watson platform, you know, all through this stack, from the science to the hardware to the way that we engineer it, is really, really optimized to, again, go where the data is, because most of our clients' data is still behind firewalls. It's not public. 80% of their data is not in the public domain. It's their private data. And to basically provide services that are optimized to learn faster with less data, right? So all of that, then you get to package into solutions, right? Which is what you were saying is like, okay, as IBM, we get the benefit that others don't get, which is we can line up all that stack, you know, as much as we we license these elements, right? So so we license, you know, people can buy power, people can, can buy uh, Watson. But when we actually string it together, then we end up having the advantage, as you said, we're the, the only company that can do this at scale for the enterprise space. Then you come up with very, very, very interesting uh, use cases, right? And, you know, a couple of them that has been, you know, I can talk about them because they're, they're public, you know, a, a couple of cases uh, like Orange Bank. You know, Orange was a telecommunications company that, you know, basically said, hey, can we basically come out with a bank? And uh, what that means is, you, you know, when you reinvent a bank that way, you want to make sure that it's a bank that is digital from the grounds up. You know, we partner with Orange Bank they launch a bank in four months, 400,000 conversations were actually being handled by artificial intelligence and half of the calls were actually being resolved through the artificial intelligence with zero human intervention. Now, what's interesting is this was not done with the purpose of actually eliminating jobs because this was a new bank. This was done with the purpose of actually empowering the actual people at the bank to provide exceptionally better service for their clients that they wouldn't have time before if all they're doing is answering routine, you know, routine tasks, right? So, so you end up with a higher value uh, bank that, you know, this is, again, enterprise AI at scale, right? It's not AI tourism. It's not an experiment. And that kind of like gives you a little bit of like how, how this stack, when you line it up together, you can achieve um, enterprise scale results in a very short period of time. That's quite a good story. So you actually scaled up. How long? So is it four months from conception conception to implementation? Correct. From conception to implementation, the project was, uh, I I think it was six, seven months. But then from the point that it was launched, right, you know, we actually uh, measure four months and 400,000 conversations have been addressed in those four months. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So what are the other industries that are being sort of upended and transformed? Medicine, law, where are we? What's, What's another one you're very proud of? Yeah, I was, I was going to say, it's actually it's becoming harder to find an industry that is not at some level being, being transformed 
with AI, right? You know, I'll, I'll give you an interesting example. So obviously, to answer your questions, the industries where their starting point, they have a higher degree of technology in their overall value proposition immediately becomes, you know, obvious targets. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean by that, for example, financial services. If you think of what a financial services company is, is, I mean, somebody told me the other day, you know, a bank is a technology company with a banking license, right? So it is the, <laughs> the, the majority of what financial services companies do is, is a, there is a significant element of technology. And therefore, obviously, they're going to be leading on that. When you think of telecommunications company, again, you know, at the core of what the industry is, there is a significant amount of data and technology. And therefore, artificial intelligence is going to be applied to that. Now, I'm, I'm going to take you to the other extreme, and it's, it's another story that we're very proud of is, let me tell you about an industry that is known for not adopting at all technology right. in almost anything right. they do, which is the industry of uh, construction, uh, cement, and the heavy materials. And I'm going to talk to you about one of our clients, which is Cemex, is, is one of the, uh, the, the large global cement manufacturers, right? Mexico, so, Cimientos Mexicanos. There you go. Yeah, they're they're uh, they're headquartered in Mexico, but their their reach is global, right? They they operate in more than thirty countries. So, so for the last two years, we have been in a journey to digitalization. Which think about it, right? So this is an industry that pretty much does not use technology for anything. But the the view of the CEO and the leadership was that they believed that you know technology and data would actually transform the experience, and that would be a competitive advantage. And they wanted to be in the leading edge of that. They embarked in this transformation. We created a platform with them. They launched this platform. In eight months, they have, uh, I believe, 17,000 of their clients already using the platform to transact with them. Uh, that is over half of their you know, client base globally in 18 months, adopting technology and engaging with them uh, with adoption of further, I mean, I think some of their adoption for, if you want administrative task is up to 80% on some countries. So think about that. In eight months, what that tells you about changing behavior is, you know, a platform going from zero, basically no digital transactions between the clients and Cemex to in eight months, in I believe it's 30 countries, 17,000 clients, half of their client base engage with them in a digital form. So that that gives you the sense that even in industries where you would say, well, yeah, that, that's never going to happen there, uh, you can actually find ways to uh, to hit a very, very fast ramp up and, uh, and disrupt with data and therefore with AI. Was that just a finance function or, or I mean, obviously, they're still moving cement around in trucks. No, it's, uh, no, 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 it's order. It's order. I mean, they, it's basically order to cash, the full order to cash. Uh, it includes, obviously, I mean, think about it, the benefit of actually knowing uh, for, for construction companies, the scheduling of when the cement is going gonna, is gonna to get and make sure, sure that that is on time is a big driver of the cost. So is not only ordering, knowing what they order, getting confirmation when it's going to get there, track when it's getting there, make sure that the, uh, you know, the back end. So it is the full end-to-end supply chain. It's not just the financials. In an industry that really, again, I can't iterate it is known for not being a, a fast adopter of technology. Uh, indeed not. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, some of the stereotypes are true about hard-hatted, very practical workaday guys. Um, what about other, other industry? Just, uh, just one more. I just want to give people a, a sense of the potential for this as well. We got one from medicine or we got one from automotive or 
one more maybe. Well, we're seeing uh, obviously professional services, right? When you talk about the um, impact on knowledge worker, right? So basically any industries that have a lot of knowledge worker where, you know, our early work on the healthcare industry and it, it focused primarily on, you know, professionals, right? Whether it's the, you know, the doctors or the nurses or the radiologists, right? So these are aids to that to auditing firms, right? So many, many of, of which are our clients, right? So how do you redefine what auditing means on the sure. age of uh, on the age of artificial intelligence to the very well, you know, publicized, you know, uh, tax preparation, right? So making tax preparation, you know, better with the use of artificial intelligence as, as HR Block did. So I think those industries that are predominantly in the professional and knowledge worker side, all of them are being uh, augmented by AI. Hmm. Do you have a role, does IBM have a role in the education and in the, so, I mean, I'm thinking about organizations that are very, maybe beginning in the maturity curve there, there may be still AI tourists. I know there may be fewer of them left or something like that. How does IBM help with the process of educating and working with the business to help them, to help them up the knowledge curve? I mean, you know, it's an extraordinarily complex area technologically, and it requires transformation to many of the human processes. So how do you work with businesses to, to help them do the human side of the AI change, if you will? Yeah, I mean, again, we have the benefit as IBM to actually have the full stack, including services. So our services organization has like really a a great set of offerings to help clients with both from the evaluation of cases, as we said before, just determining their purpose and, and make sure that they understand uh, where should they start? Now, that is powered by the benefit that I mentioned before, which is we've got thousands of you know experiences, so we can very quickly distill of, well, companies like you in your industry, in your function, are known to apply AI in these areas and are known to get these benefits, right? So you, you can basically, from the engagement, to help them form their strategy to actually help them in a very innovative way to start developing their own competency. And and we do that with something that we call the IBM Garage, which is we try to teach some of our clients how to use design thinking to create possibilities that they didn't know they could have and very tightly link it with Agile so they can pilot it and create low fidelity prototypes and actually see that the technology will actually work to then actually tie that in the in the technology side with DevOps and talent and change. So you can actually go from the pilot to the impact at scale. That is what we call the IBM garage is if you want stringing a number of methodologies and, and being able to stand that up in a very quick way without organization change in the client, but being able to learn what it means to really deploy artificial intelligence with uh, multidisciplinary teams and do that at scale, right? So we- That's cool. Yeah, we So for listeners, I just want to put a bracket here for listeners. So things like Agile and DevOps, they're the human side of artificial intelligence and the garage and design thinking also. So the garage is a place where you'd bring an executive team and hot house them. I don't know if that the metaphor you use for what, three to five days or something like that, and help them really take a deep dive into the purpose of business strategy using design thinking. Am I visualizing that correctly? It started like that, but how it has evolved is that clients actually say, well, wait a minute, we want this to be permanent, not just an event. So what they do is they actually deploy their teams 
And we, IBM, deploy our teams. And in some cases, we bring, you know, third parties of our ecosystems. And what we do is we, we allow the client to actually practice this agile method, to your point, is practice the idea of taking a purpose, envision how we could do it better with technology, actually build it very quickly in one to two weeks, try it, then do the math and say, wow, this, this business case is exceptional. And then immediately, you know, keep iterating and say, okay, well, this works. Then, you know, do another one, right? Which may take another two weeks. And that one, they say, well, you know, we tried, but we don't think it should work. So we should discard this, but we learned something. So let's try something new. What has happened is most of this started, as you said, it was more an executive overview, but very quickly has become a pragmatic way to change behavior, change habits, and change the way to work for our own clients. So we've got over 300 in the world of these garages now where clients actually say, hey, we don't, we actually want to continue this. We just want this to be part of our culture change and our mechanism to learn how to actually embed technology and change the way we do our work. I can speak as a consultant. And, uh, you know, from my point of view, sometimes I, I work with consulting firms and I see that they're doing business almost exactly the same way as they're doing when I joined the business in 1993. And this is an example of doing something really, really differently than, you know, my 25 years or whatever is consulting experience. This is quite a radical experiment. I love it. I love it. It's a new way of working. It is. And it's, it's, uh, our clients love it and, and think about it kind of like coming back to the introduction, Paul, of, uh, you know, it takes actually fusing business consulting and technology to a level of intimacy that it, it was not there in traditional consulting firms. So Never has been, again, yeah. an advantage of being IBM is the ability that we can connect those two worlds better than probably others out there and our clients benefit of that. Very cool. I want to, I, I mean, this has been amazing. Um, I want to touch a little bit on what people read in the, the tabloid newspapers about artificial intelligence before we leave. Some of the, some of the risks, I think, I'm thinking of two categories of risk. One is the risks sometimes identified by famous people like Hawking and Musk, the existential risks, a sort of Terminator judgment day kind of risks, uh, and then the risks to businesses also. So do you have a comment on, on, on those for us? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I think from our perspective, IBM, we focus on a very, very specific purpose of artificial intelligence, right? And, and one of the things that we did, frankly, almost two years ago now, is we came up and we published our responsibility and transparency principles of use of AI. And we encourage everybody to basically say, ask the question, what is the purpose for which AI is being used? In our world, in, in the world that IBM focuses AI, which is in the world of enterprise AI, our declare an exclusive purpose is to augment the human capability. So in that sense, everything that we do research on, the products that we build, the mechanism by which we introduce those products to society and to our clients, that responsible introduction is always targeted to basically give humans bigger levers, right? So think about on the physical world is we just want to give more capabilities to the humans, which means we, we really don't see an environment where our technology would replace or would like become a terminator like, because it's kind of not what we're working on, right? What we're working on, our main purpose is that. I think it's very important that people ask those questions. I think it's also very important that people ask the question, hey, you know, what data 
is this artificial intelligence, you know, technology or algorithm, what data is used to train it and what expertise, meaning what humans are training that. Uh, and that is important for two reasons, right? One is important because of the issue of transmission of bias is if there is bias in the data, that bias will be transferred to, you know, the artificial intelligence engine. So, if, you know, if, if data underrepresents, you know, a category of society, most likely the AI engine will perpetuate that underrepresentation. We're talking so about very diversity and people, inclusion. And- exactly. We could talk about sex. We could talk about ethnicity. We could talk about any kind of decision, right? So you people need to ask the question, you know, what data is being used? The other thing is, is what is the... What are the humans determining what good versus bad means, which is the other element of the training of AI or, you know, supervised training, then is a person who's saying, well, this is good and this is bad. You know, again, when you look at consumer use cases, that is less relevant. If your AI, if the AI engine in your phone doesn't detect a face in a picture, the consequences are not that relevant. But if you're training you know, assistant to make sure that, for example, as we were saying before, in a significant transaction, we want to audit and determine that there is, you know, no risk in a certain transaction. Well, you want to make sure that the people who trained that system were experts at that, right? So if it is a medical condition, you want experts on medicine. If it is, you know, a risk on compliance, you want experts on compliance, right? Is is one of the reasons why you know, IBM basically acquired leading companies on these areas and then put them to train the AI because you want to make sure that, you know, you know, in the same way, when you go to a doctor, you want to, you want to know like what school did they go and, you know, are they good at this? You want to know your AI, you know, is qualified in that way. So that is a second uh, point. And I think is is this third point of uh, just making sure that your data that actually then ends up used by an artificial intelligence engine that you have control over it. And the insights that get out of that are yours. When you add all of that, our focus doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really tie with the narrative of Terminator. It actually ties more with the narrative of what's a little bit of our history is is just, you know, using technology to enhance the way business and society works, right? So in that sense, that's the focus that we're on. We're very focused on responsibly introducing AI to both society and to our clients and specifically on that area of uh enterprise AI to augment the professionals in our enterprises to, frankly, increase the value that they can provide for themselves and for their companies. Yeah. So it's actually, you know, uh, the the purpose in a very abstract way is, is you're talking about the purpose of AI is a very human purpose. It's even a way of empowering human beings and a way of expanding what human beings are capable of rather than, it's, it's kind of people first rather than technology first. Exactly. I mean, think about it. A uh, hundred years ago, you would use a bicycle to go and, you know, see your significant other and somebody invented the car and somebody would ask the question, well, wait a minute, what if the car gets there faster and steal my significant other? It's like, no, 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 no. The car <laughs> is not to steal your significant other. The car is so you can actually go there faster, right? That's the view that, that we have of artificial intelligence is it is to help the human to actually achieve their purpose or achieve an even greater purpose is, is not to, you know, basically switch the equation, right? Right, right, right. And I guess the question that people are asking and is, you know, and I, I know we're not setting out to alter the employment landscape, 
but it's inevitably going to happen. There will be some jobs that will prosper and there'll be more of certain kinds of jobs and there'll be fewer of other kinds of jobs. So, so you know, what's your view, to, you know, maybe there are young people listening who are in their 20s or something like that. Where, where should they be maybe thinking about perhaps this is such a fertile industry to go into? I know truck driving, that's the one people always say. Uh, maybe there are not many truck drivers, potential truck drivers listening, but where would you, where would you steer people toward and where would you steer people away from if you were counseling sort of young people today? The first thing that I would encourage people to do is, you know, the, the sometimes media takes an argument and highlights one element versus another because it's a um, better headline. Uh, most of the studies that we have seen, we've done a lot of studies on the future of work, the implication of technology, and the majority actually all except one of those studies actually project that the technologies will result in an increase on the number of jobs versus a decrease on the number of jobs. What they also talk about is a significant, uh, to your point, difference in the nature of those jobs. So jobs that are very repetitive in nature will tend to decrease. And that is what, you know, people love to cite love numbers like maybe in the US they say oh you know 30 to 35 million of jobs are going to disappear in the next 15 years because of technologies they don't continue the sentence when they say and the same study also say that 40 to 45 million jobs will be created because of those same technologies now right and the key question is what kind of jobs because you just said exactly. predictable jobs versus unpredictable jobs so what are examples exactly and i think i think some of those so for example there is a number of uh, of categories, if you think about it, on the impact of that. One of it is the quantity of work, right? So work that are more repetitive, the actual quantity that we will need is less because we believe that automation and artificial intelligence will be able to take some of that. I think how the work will get done, we've done examples. I think technology is going to uh, be embedded on that. But then the interesting thing is there's going to be new jobs that you know, did not exist, that they will be created. And what we're dealing is with the balance of all of those, right? So in our view, for example, you know, the, the displaced work, as I said, if we take the US just as an example, it's 30 to 35 million roles. If you think about it, it's like a, a telemarketer, right? So if your job is a telemarketer, well, you know, in 15 years, there will be less needs for people whose their job is literally to make 100 calls every day. It's not a very fulfilling job anyway, right? right. So, you know, or, or a machine operator. Now, when you go into the, hey, how are we going to enhance jobs? Well, uh, data scientists, there's going to be a lot more jobs for data scientists. There's going to be increasing jobs for some, the developers of these new technologies, like you mentioned, blockchain, migration to cloud. There's going to be a lot of jobs of cybersecurity specialists, right? So all of those jobs, you know, are going to be increasing. There's going to be, changes in some of the jobs that we have today, especially the professional categories as, you know, nurses will use more technology to do their job. Lawyers will use more technology to do their job. Sales reps. So it's not going to be a replacement of the job. It's going to be an enhancement of the skill and the value proposition. I think there's going to be brand new jobs that, you know, frankly, um, today they don't exist. And an example of that. And some of them we can't imagine. Well, correct. And some of them we're starting to imagine. For example, you know, there will be augmented reality journey builders. That job does not exist yet, but it will be invented. And in the same way that if you, if you go 20 years ago, 
a digital artist was not a job that anybody would kind of like think about it. And now you you look at how many actual right. you know, digital artist yeah. jobs there are. Hundreds you of know, yeah. I think you're going to see some of them. I think you're going to have a job like uh, algorithm forensic analyst, right? So some of these algorithms will need to actually be diagnosed when they go wrong. And that's going to be the job of somebody. I think, uh, you know, human experience designers is going to be, you know, a set of... Uh, new jobs that will embed both, you know, physical world and technology in order to create better experiences. And then there's going to be a lot of AI related jobs to both, you know, create the models, to train the models, to monitor the models. So, so you have, again, all of that range. I think that the, the recommendation that I would, I would have for pretty much anybody is, I think, plotting a journey for everybody to use more, if you want, data science on almost every aspect of, of our jobs, right? So at the end of the day, artificial intelligence is, is just an engine to help a human deal with the fact that there is more information to help us make decisions that we can normally, with our just five senses unenhanced, deal with, right? So getting comfortable with that equation and developing that behavior of um, in the same way that people go to Google to answer a question, then kind of understand how do you use data and artificial intelligence to make every decision I make better, to make, you know, my profession better, to actually provide a better product for my clients or a better service, right? I think that's, that's I would say, the best antidote to prepare for the next 15 years. Very cool. And I hope that both you and I are around to enjoy it. <laughs> I hope so too. As we get into our other years. Look, that's been really, from my point of view, it's amazing, amazing to hear uh, your journey. And I've always been a great admirer of IBM. Uh, you know, I, I, I think touched on this slightly in the introduction, but IBM, you know, used to make meat slicers. So in the 19th century, and uh, then it made uh, electronic scales, and then it made manual calculators and electronic calculators and the digital computer. And IBM has been the, at the forefront of technological transformation for almost 150 years. And to my mind, it's a really remarkable testament. It's been so successful at reinventing itself and really the future that we have today that we look around us and has been in no small part created by IBM and the work it's done over 150 years at the forefront of technology. So I think it's a cool company. Uh, you're a very cool company, and I've always been a big fan of IBM. So I, I really appreciate you being with me. Absolutely, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity uh, to talk about something that you could probably tell I'm very passionate about. As I said, I'm more of a geek that people realize. And um, I was doing artificial intelligence when it wasn't cool at all. My uh, master thesis back in 1992 was applying artificial intelligence to uh, speech recognition. And I can tell you that was not cool at all then. So somehow in my journey, 24 years later, it became cool to be in AI. Yeah, that's really great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. And hey, to wrap up the show, I'm going to draw attention to two books on AI. The first is by philosopher Nick Bostrom, and it's called Superintelligence. Nick is as good as they come. He gave a talk when I was president of the University of London Philosophy Society way, way back in the day. The book is somewhat technical philosophically, and I must confess to having put it down after 50 pages. But if you're interested in the philosophical risks and the history of artificial intelligence, this is definitely a book to have a look at. The second book is by Thomas Davenport, and it's called The AI Advantage, and it's straight business, i.e. not philosophy. And it hasn't yet arrived in the mail, but 
Davenport, in my opinion, is standalone among business authors. He's got books on analytics and many, many others. I believe he's one of the best. If you know my writing and if you know my public speaking, you know that I don't generally think much of business books and business book authors. So Davenport's book, The AI Advantage, may well be worth checking out. And on popular culture, I feel as if television started 2018 like really super strongly and then like sort of uh, really fizzled out. After finishing Ozark, which was outstanding and probably going to win my award for the best show of 2018, I've been groping for something to watch. I just tried Walking Dead, which is pretty close to just plain terrible. So I don't know what people were raving about all those years ago when it was everybody's favorite show. And I'm sorry if you're a deadhead, but it did nothing for me. Um, I'm also trying to struggle a little bit with Netflix's Maniac, which is so noggin boiling, perhaps in the same way as Black Mirror was. I mean, it's definitely artful. And it's definitely, definitely hard to grasp. I'm going to reserve judgment on that one. But one show that really surprised me is Daredevil Season 3. You know, Marvel's TV shows are super variable. Some are really very strong and some are just plain awful. Do not watch Iron Fist, for example. But the writers on Daredevil have done some great work to make this more than just a tired third season sequel to an already really, really tired plotline and tired, tired characters. So yeah, Daredevil Season 3, good, Netflix Maniac, I'm Reserving Judgment, Walking Dead, Pretty Lousy, and Ozark, maybe the best show of the year. Who knows? Okay, well, that's it for me this week. I want to thank you for listening. Thank you for all your support, and I will talk to you shortly. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening, I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy-to-follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place. Mm -hmm.